0: professor of law at the University of Tennessee. We'll be discussing your article, Criminal Insider Trading and Personal Networks, which is forthcoming in the Stetson Business Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Joan, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Joan, in a typical business associations class or securities regulation class, the module on insider trading is a few days at least, a few classes at least, and you could probably teach an entire course just on the law of insider trading. But I wonder if I could put you to the difficult task of offering our listeners a quick introduction to the law of insider trading, maybe with an explanation of misappropriation and tipper tippy liability, which you talked about in this article. Some may be aware of the law of insider trading already, but would love to level set with those who maybe aren't as familiar with this area of law.
1: Sure. Happy to do that. And you're right. It's clear one could teach an entire course and probably beyond that on insider trading. Interestingly, in the United States, insider trading is actually punishable as a form of securities fraud, which is not true in most other countries in the world, especially in civil law countries where statutes codify as much as they can about exactly what's unlawful about combining the sharing of information and trading, which is really what this is about at its core. But in the United States, basically, in order to punish insider trading, there has to be some form of deception in connection with the purchase or sale of a security with what we call c There's a nice, crazy word to use. What does that mean? Basically means acting in reckless disregard here for the propensity that your conduct has to deceive someone. And so the question becomes, where's the deception in insider trading? What does that have to do with sharing information? Basically, if you deceive someone with whom you have a trust relationship, respecting information, you can be caught for insider trading. So in a typical insider trading case, that would be people who are trading with you. You should be sharing full and fair information with them, not holding some information just for your own use in the transaction, the classic form of insider trading. But you also could, in fact, be deceiving someone by abusing the trust that you have in another form of a relationship. And that's a squirrelier kind of insider trading. The main point here is that if someone is engaged in a purchase or sale of securities, they either should disclose all the information to that person or abstain from trading with that person. That's at the core of what insider trading means. But it's grown a little because it emanates from this fraud doctrine to incorporate other circumstances that we don't necessarily think about when we think about insider trading.
0: Could you talk about some of those circumstances? How might I misappropriate information and be liable for insider trading? And how might I be liable in a tipper tippy type relationship? Is there maybe a almost a stereotypical setting that we might see insider trading occurring? Of course, maybe the most famous popular portrayal was in the movie Wall Street with Bud Fox a stockbroker is that the typical setting and is that sort of the typical set of the facts for an insider trading case
1: that's certainly what we think of most when we think of insider trading is a situation where somebody is either using information for their own benefit because they've gotten it in connection with working for a particular firm that has some inside information either internally or as an outside advisor whether that's as a financial advisor or As a lawyer, something you and I care about. Or in fact, as you suggest, maybe that person who gets that information from that relationship of trust sharing that information with someone else. And that's called tipping. And that person could, in fact, share information with the next person down the line, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea would be generally that some trader along the way is conceived of getting some benefit out of that. So having information someone else does so that they can basically beat the market. So there can be a voluntary sharing of information or an involuntary sharing of information in some of those relationships where information is shared and the person who receives it may or may not actually trade, but in fact, reshare that information. There are some classic cases. Some people listening to this may remember the series of network insider trading cases that were prosecuted a number of years ago, they were really part of that classic insider trading mold where people with inside information about technology or drugs were sometimes advertently, sometimes inadvertently sharing that information with people who could use it in trading, who did trading for a living, basically. And so networks of information sources and information users were set up in those cases, making that sort of classic insider trading scenario, even more complicated and difficult to deal with. But what about other circumstances? In what other circumstances could people share information? That's what motivates my work on this paper and really on a larger project of which this paper forms part. And that is, what about just people who share information in personal relationships? The most recent Supreme Court case, The Salman case is a case where basically one brother shares information with another brother who shares it with the future brother-in-law. I understand in the first case why people would want to share information or get information as traders, but why in a friends and family situation like that would people share information either purposefully or maybe without intending to share information that ends up getting involved in a trade. That for me was the core. I didn't understand based on my family relationships and my friendships, why it was that people would trade information in those scenarios, The tipping liability in particular, and also the form of liability where someone is essentially using information shared inadvertently, we call misappropriation, why would you take information from a friend or a family member and use that to trade or to share with someone else who trades? It just befuddled me, to be frank. And so that's why I started breaking out a group of insider trading, folks involved in insider trading, who needed to be studied separately because I wasn't sure about their motivations and I wasn't sure about why they were taking risks in those scenarios.
0: We might think about the maybe prototypical case of insider trading as being people who are insiders, they are engaged in some kind of white collar context, whether they're inside a company or they're a trader or a lawyer or broker or somebody else who's privy to this information or becomes privy to this information. And as you say, it's easy to understand why they do what they do. It's to profit. And that, that question becomes far more complicated in the case of Involving your friends or family in illegal criminal activity. So, as you mentioned, you did this study in the paper, and I'd love to hear a little bit about the data that you collected, some of the findings that you have for friends and family insider trading. So, who's doing this? You allude to some people might get tips from family members, some people might steal information from friends or family. What kinds of relationships are these?
1: They weren't what I expected. To be frank, when I started to break out looking at friends and family cases as opposed to cases motivated by financial trading, or at least clearly motivated by financial trading, I thought what I was going to find was a lot of spousal relationships. There's been a classic form of case called the pillow talk case, where your two partners are in their private space with each other, and one of them is mumbling on about some transaction that they've done, and the other one takes and uses the information. That motivated my study in large part because there are a couple of interesting cases of that kind that we teach in law school and that we worry about as academics and policymakers. But what I ended up finding was it's mostly friends that are doing this with each other and not family members, although there are certain family relationships that one can call out, including siblings and parent and child relationships. The way I got at this data is that that led to those results was that I started looking in about 2018 retrospectively at cases, hoping to get back to the year 2000. But because this is a hand-collected data set that I'm working with, we ran out of gas at about 2011. And that was fine, or rather 2008, 11 years worth of data. And so we ended up looking in three sources because as those who are in this field know, you can have civil enforcement or criminal enforcement in insider trading. And you can have civil enforcement that is brought in front of an SEC administrative tribunal or that is brought in front of a federal district court for initial consideration. And the criminal cases are brought by the Department of Justice, as opposed to the Securities and Exchange Commission. They're brought in federal district court. So we had to really look at three data sources to gather the data Then, of course, when you're looking at these enforcement actions, you have to pick out the ones that deal with friends and family. That proved to not be perfectly easy either. But what we ended up with, I'm reasonably secure, is a data set that has in it basically friends and family cases, not cases that are motivated through, in some way, a financial classic insider trading that I referred to a minute ago. What it led to was, as I said, first of all, finding some cases that were family, but mostly cases that were friendships, overwhelming friendship cases, which I found interesting. I also found interesting, although perhaps not remarkable for most people, that most of the cases involved men, either on both sides of the transaction or on one side of the transaction. There were very few women involved in these cases. And if you're interested, we can talk a little bit about why I think that's the case. And then again, within the relationships themselves, how much was tipping? How much was this misappropriation insider trading where someone takes information from someone else? Most of it was tipping cases. There were, though, a small set of misappropriation cases. And interestingly, those were spousal cases, the ones that originally motivated my study. And in those cases, sadly, maybe for the men in relationships, they were male-female partnerships in fact all legally married folks in my data set and in each case the men were taking the information from the women without the women necessarily meaning to share it there's a classic case in that group that i have written about in another law review article that involves a man who's taking information from his wife who's working from home on the telephone and mentions casually over the dinner table a particular transaction And says that she can't trade, which should be a signal to him that he can't trade based on the insider trading policy of her employer, Oracle. And he goes out and trades on the information anyway and gets caught. Of course, she's no longer working for Oracle. And he... I'm not sure how the marriage went after that. Perhaps I can find that out in a subsequent study. Those are some of the interesting things that I found when I looked at the data set. And in the criminal area, the subset of cases shows almost exactly the same thing as in the larger data set. That also was interesting to me. The cases are obviously being prosecuted for some policy reason as in some cases as criminal and other cases as civil. That may be because the level of knowledge of the parties is greater, that we moved from Center into mens rea in some of those cases that indicates a criminal prosecution.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the conclusions that you, maybe even tentative conclusions that you drew from these data. I'd love to hear, as you offered, some thoughts about why men are involved in most of the cases, either on both sides of the transaction or one, or the misappropriators, the betrayers, essentially are, it sounds like, exclusively men. So we'd love to hear a little bit about what you draw from these data, and are there any limitations that we should be thinking about in terms of these data?
1: Absolutely. Yes, there are limitations. And there's one really huge one I want to make sure I mention. For me, the data relating to gender, as I earlier indicated, was unremarkable to me, largely because there are mostly men still in the trading market for securities. And if you look at the general data, that proves that out. Now, the key that's interesting is they are in the market in lesser percentages than they are prosecuted for They're where enforcement actions are taken against them. They're taken in a higher proportion than their participation in the market, which means to me two things that I'd like to look at more closely. One is what's behind that data? What kinds of trading are men and women entering into? And I've done some prior work on that, showing that women are less frequent traders generally as individuals than men are. I'd like to update some of that research to try and determine whether men are in the market more because the same man is trading over and over again, which may mean that a person with a propensity for insider trading is then easier to catch because that person has a lot of trading activity that can be monitored. I don't really know that's the case, but I'd like to look at that. I'd also like to talk to the people involved in these cases and find out really what does motivate them to either voluntarily share information with someone or to take information from someone else, in particular a spouse. I still am interested, even though they're a minority of my overall data set and the data set that's represented in this paper. I'd like to find out really why people in such close relationships would take information from a spouse, presumably unwittingly. Now we are presuming some things. So one limitation of the data set is we're working with publicly available documents. We're working with the Securities and Exchange Commission's complaint or an indictment. And sometimes in the insider trading cases, there are settlements as well. So you never even get trial testimony, but then you get trial testimony, can be very self-serving. And maybe some of the men in these misappropriation cases are taking the hit for their wife who shared the information with them voluntarily. There are just so many different factors that unless you talk with someone or were involved in the case in some other way where you had that knowledge, you wouldn't know really what motivated people. And so this continues to fascinate me. And I would like to do some qualitative interviews with people after my data set is completed on the larger project and try to tease some of these things out. Of course, those statements also could be biased. And I think that's important for us to realize. Then I guess for the larger data set, one larger limitation that I can think of off the top of my head, is that prosecutions and enforcement actions are brought by officials who have discretion. And so not every case that the Department of Justice attorney finds is going to be a case they want to prosecute. Some of those cases may end up in civil enforcement, but not every action that the Securities and Exchange Commission is exposed to is going to result in civil enforcement. So there's a lot of tending and weeding that people do when they get facts in a particular case about insider trading that they do before a cause of action is brought of one kind or another. There really are a lot of significant limitations on the data set. I'm not sure how much we can derive about humankind necessarily about some of these cases just looking at this data. There are certainly some directions that it points in that I'd like to follow up on much more closely.
0: It sounds like there's still a big question mark about why they do it, why they put family members or friends at risk, why they betray perhaps family members or friends instilling this information. It sounds like there is this big question mark, but do you have any tentative thoughts about perhaps why they do it? Or does the literature suggest anything about why people in these friends and family scenarios might engage in insider trading networks?
1: Yes. I'm not the only one who's curious about this. And law, of course, is only one lens that we can use to look at these cases. So I have done some rooting around and plan to do some more in the theoretical literature from a variety of different fields that I could think that might have an impact. The classic, insider trading cases have often been explained by the law and economics movement, in particular, the tried and true rational choice theory that explains people's behaviors, assessing the costs and benefits and taking action where the benefits exceed the costs. And people, there's a classic theorist, Becker, who's done work in this area, and people have modified, added to, and reified that work in various different ways since that time. But there's also been a literature that challenges that, or at least presents some counterpoint in the business management literature, where basically they're looking at the failure to perceive harm. So maybe something that could almost underlie rational choice theory, that people just don't see why insider trading harms anybody. They don't understand why the deception is harmful. It's just a breach of trust. What's the big deal? We've got other causes of action for that. Why should this be an insider trading case? And and Eugene Soltis at Harvard has done some work in that area has written a whole book called actually, ironically, why they do it, which was the way you phrased the question. And he's done some qualitative interviews in a variety of white collar crime areas in that regard. I'm not sure that his book fully explains my data set of friends and family cases, but it certainly is intriguing and could form the basis for some qualitative questions to ask of people involved in these cases. There are theories that I put into A corporate finance area, more of behavioral psychology and how it interfaces with human behavior. Again, rational choice a little bit. Looking at things like whether someone needs to engage in behavior for status reasons or as a matter of hubris, overweening self-pride, right? Wanting to be the big honcho, wanting to be the guy that gets the deal, wanting to be the one that evades the system, maybe even. So I do think that holds a lot of promise, those sort of behavioral psychology overlays on law and economics. And then I guess uh, switching gears completely out of that space and more deeply into the social sciences, there are philosophers and psychologists who've looked at this from the standpoint of norms that people might be doing uh, what's expected in their particular situation. So their social context, their economic context may frame what they believe people expect them to do and they act in accordance with those expectations query whether the Salmon case is the case like that, as I think about it, where there are certain cultures within a particular a sibling relationship, certain cultures within a family that might instill that kind of behavior in someone or at least catalyze it. So I think there are a lot of lines of questioning here. I plan to, before I do any qualitative interviews, sit down with people in these fields, talk through some of these things and develop a rigorous line of questions that hopefully will try and illuminate some of these theories. But the theories themselves are certainly out there for the picking and I think will help to tease out better what some causes are of insider trading and friends and family relationships.
0: All right. Well, sounds like there are exciting things to come in this project for you. I wonder if there are any takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview or from the article or any other thoughts you'd like to close with.
1: I think it's always nice to just remind people that you shouldn't fool around with insider trading. Not that anyone listening to this would ever necessarily think about doing this. Although I've had lawyer and paralegal friends who've been involved, unfortunately, in insider trading cases because of their behavior. This If you have information that is significant and is not public about a particular publicly traded firm, you should do more than think twice before trading. You should make sure that information is wholly public before you trade. It just seems like so many lives are ruined. And that, again, is part of the motivation for this project is why ruin the friendships? Why ruin the family relationships? It just doesn't seem worth it in the end for however many dollars you might make out of that trade or whatever kind of pride you might feel. So if you can step back and, and just not trade on material non-public information, I think that's a great thing. The more I read these cases, my heart breaks. I think that's my big takeaway. And my kids certainly have gotten that message from me. And my husband's gotten that message from me since I worked in a law firm that dealt with non-public information all the time. But I'd love for everybody to have that information and be able to use it.
0: Our guest today has been Joan McLeod Hemingway, Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee. We've discussed her article, Criminal Insider Trading in Personal Networks which is forthcoming in the Stetson Business Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Joan, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here today.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.